0: You are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Charles Sutton, who is a research scientist at Google Brain and an associate professor at the University of Edinburgh. His research focuses on deep learning for generating code and helping people write better programs. Charles' PhD thesis is titled Efficient Training Methods for Conditional Random Fields, which he completed in 2008 at UMass Amherst. We start with how Charles got started in the field and his work in the thesis on structured graphical models for text. We talk about the backstory of his research strategy based on the idea that sufficiently difficult applications motivate the development of new methodologies. We talk about parallels and contrasts between the NLP methods from 2008 and the large language models that we use today, including transformers and whether they have any limitations, and the learning algorithms that we use to train them. From there, we talk about the path to working on machine learning for code and program synthesis, and two recent works that adopt two different philosophies, Crossbeam, a bottom-up synthesis method, which you can view as a soft version of a divide and conquer strategy for synthesis, and recent work on using large language models with hundreds of billions of parameters for end-to-end synthesis. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesisreview, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Charles Sutton with Efficient Training Methods for Conditional Random Fields on the thesis review. Before we go into your PhD work, I thought we'd just start by talking about your background. So before you even decided to do a PhD, kind of what was your academic background and then What led up to uh, you becoming interested in research and then in doing a PhD?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I came from a background that's maybe a little bit unusual, but not too unusual. So I, I actually went to a liberal arts college. Uh, for my undergraduate, and I was always, you know, kind of excited by artificial intelligence and cognitive science, even before I really understood what they were. So I, I actually uh, double majored in computer science and philosophy as an undergrad. So I, I was, you know, reading some, you know, kind of, at a, you know, an undergraduate level, like philosophy of mind and stuff like that. And I, I found it uh, motivational um, at, that, at that time. And um, the last year of my undergrad, I was looking for would I go to grad school? Did I want to, you know, work in industry? And I think I may have seen like a book or maybe a paper about the Psych Project, uh, CYC, um, <laughs> which was I, I, still going on, as far as I know. Um, it this incredibly ambitious project from knowledge-based AI, and the idea was that, uh, and this is kind of Doug Lennett as uh, the founder, and the idea is that expert systems were really effective at all kinds of complex reasoning, but they didn't understand kind of common sense about the world. Like if you took the big um, expert system for um, uh, kind of diagnosing bacterial infections and you explain to them a patient who had their arm cut off while they try to figure out what bacterial infection caused the arm to get cut off. So the idea is, okay, what expert systems really need is common sense knowledge. So the idea was to kind of create a rule-based system that would contain all the common sense knowledge that people had. Um, so uh, so I actually just kind of like cold emailed them having seen uh, their paper and I kind of got a job there. So I ended up working there for a year, uh, before I went to grad school. And when I was thinking about, you know, uh, and what I was doing there, it's kind of really, um, um, what I was doing at psych was interesting technology, but I wouldn't really call it research. I was working more as kind of a software engineer on applications of the system. And when I was thinking about whether I wanted to go into research, Basically, what I told myself is, well, if I worked solely as a software engineer, then I would be working on problems where I kind of already knew they were feasible at the start. And um, I wanted to work on problems where I didn't know from the beginning uh, whether they were feasible or not. And I figured, okay, well, that sounds like research, so maybe I should do a PhD. I think... That's what I. That was my thinking when I was, you know, nineteen or twenty. It's a little bit of an oversimplification now because there's lots of interesting things to do um, mm-hmm. as a as a software engineer. But I think there's there's some truth to that. And so that's how I ended up doing a PhD. And in my PhD, um, I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a colorful experience. Um, I actually switched supervisors uh, after the third year of my PhD. In the first part of my PhD, I was working on, you know, maybe simpler approaches to machine learning. And I, I was working on ambitious problems, but there's kind of nothing that kind of stands out to me in retrospect uh, from the first part of my PhD. So everything in my thesis is from the second half. Um, oh, I and see. I think I think what happened was that, you know, I was trying to work in a way that really didn't suit me and so it wasn't i just wasn't having the success that i was hoping for and um there was a uh, kind of an opportunity dropped in my lap um halfway through my phd which which forced me to make a decision and that's my advisor at the time i'd moved to a different university and so this kind of led me to think do i want to keep working on this or do I want to kind of switch gears a little bit? And so I decided to switch gears and I started working with Andrew McCallum. And that's when um, I started to have a lot more success uh, in, in research. And that's when I learned that, oh, I found a style that worked better for me, which is, and the way I describe that is to, I like to think about cutting edge problems that push the boundaries Of what we're able to do with fundamental techniques. And by kind of taking the application seriously, that motivates new general methods for machine learning that I wouldn't have been able to think of otherwise. So I'm trying to work Mm -hmm. bottom up from applications to methodology. And, you know, it took me a while to find that that's a method of working that suited me. Uh, So that's kind of how I ended up in this research area. And Andrew was working on conditional random fields at the time. So I was like, okay, I'll think about conditional random fields. And it was probably like a year or something. Yeah, it was probably like six months before I realized why I was working on conditional random fields and why that was actually an interesting thing to do. And there's something, there's a story about that I remember kind of distinctly, which is like, the first project in my when I started working with Andrew was a was a workshop paper on dynamic conditional random fields. Uh, so uh, Kashiar, who was uh, one of our collaborators, uh, had done a kind of version of this for a class project, and so we wanted to kind of push it forward and get a publication out of it. So the starter project that Andrew proposed to me is well, okay, why don't you start working on this? And mm-hmm. so I, you know, we had a uh, presentation at a NeurIPS workshop, uh, which was about um, different inference methods for dynamic CRFs. and uh, I compared, you know, two different kinds of loopy belief propagation. And you know, I just did it because Andrew asked me to. I didn't really understand why it was interesting to compare those two types of loopy VP. and. Mm-hmm. And then, so I give the talk and then people like Kevin Murphy and Nando Freitas are coming to me afterwards and asking me questions. And I'm like, why did they care about this little experiment that I've run? It doesn't make any sense. So I thought about it and like, okay, why do they care? Because I, I don't understand why I should care. Um, mm. And what I realized is that the The BP methods that I were looking at at the time were these kind of interesting new methods that had been proposed on kind of smaller toy tasks, and they hadn't really been pushed to larger scale applications. And the reason Mm -hmm. that all of these people were interested in them is that they wanted to see how the methods worked on more complex problems. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, this, this is something I can do. I can work in this way. So when I had that realization, that was kind of already a quantum leap in my ability to do research. And that, that was maybe the first time I noticed something, which I, from the other side, noticed uh, in PhD students and young researchers, which is young researchers make quantum leaps in their ability to do great research at unpredictable times. So you never mm, know what experience or insight is suddenly going to push somebody to the next level. Of how to do research. And yeah. so that's why, you know, when I'm interacting with a student or a young researcher, I would never tell them, oh, I think your career is going to look like this, or I think you'll be successful at a top tier lab or not. I can tell someone where they stand now if they were going to go in the market today, but I would never tell somebody six months from now or a year from now where I think they stand because I just think it's too unpredictable.
0: I see, yeah. So it's unpredictable both from the student's perspective, but then even from the advisor's perspective like it's hard to say exactly what to tell them to do to have the quantum leap.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's right. I can I can assess strengths and weaknesses and you know try to kind of nudge people in a way that will kind of help them to be more successful, but the exact insight that's necessary I think it's often unpredictable. Uh-huh. Okay. I have definitely seen examples from the other side of students who were struggling even more than I was. And something just happened in their final year. And then they went on to like an amazing research career. And when that happens, I find it like amazing and inspirational, but I don't know how to purposefully make it happen.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So there's a lot of interesting things you said there. So one is I did notice on your website that you actually say that your current research strategy is based on this idea of having sufficiently difficult applications that motivate the development. So that's interesting to hear that, like it started with this uh, working on this uh, belief propagation thing, like yeah. noticing that other people saw it as important. After that, did you kind of pick a concrete, like difficult application to keep in mind, or did that not come until later?
1: Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I guess there was a set of applications that um, um, that Andrew was interested in. Like there were a lot of people in the lab working on different types of kind of sequence labeling and information extraction tasks, and they seemed complex enough to be able to motivate the types of methods that we were excited about. Uh, I mean, some other. I mean, there are other examples that were going on in Andrew's lab at the time, like uh, coreference revolu- resolution and topic modeling, which kind of mm-hmm. had the same character. Uh, for the types of methods that I seem to be inspired by, there was basically kind of a suite of benchmark tasks that I used over and over again uh, in my PhD, and that. I don't know if that's a pattern or an anti-pattern. It certainly helped me to be productive in terms of publications because once I had a new idea for a method, I said, "Okay, does it work on this suite of tasks that I've been interested in?" And then that would tell me, you know, whether I could write a paper on this or not.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. What about uh, before we go into the content of your thesis yeah. about working at um, psych. Like, did this mm-hmm. idea of common sense and these like expert systems and trying to write all of the common sense down in some form did that kind of stick with you as one of these difficult Mm. problems or did you kind of move on from that that's a really good question
1: i would say in a way i moved on from that Mm -hmm. I, i don't think that we've i haven't been like directly trying to codify common sense knowledge in the work that i've done since then there's like one or two exceptions um but not at the scale that we were trying to do in psych Mm -hmm. i think you know some of the work that i've done on program synthesis and neurosymbolic learning is probably the closest thread that i could draw It's clear that there are some advantages that symbolic reasoning has that we would like, whatever our next AI system is, whether it's neural, symbolic, neurosymbolic, something else, we would like the system to have these advantages. So that's one reason that I and other people have been interested in this kind of neurosymbolic stuff, but there's risks to it as well uh, that we can get into.
0: So then, yeah. So I guess from the, pre-PhD work to the topic of your thesis definitely shifted focus. And then, yeah, so as you've been mentioning, like the, uh, the title of your thesis is efficient training methods for conditional random fields, just to give some context uh, before we talk about like what you did here, like what is a conditional random field and kind of, why was it interesting at the time? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, the, A conditional random field is a type of structured prediction method. The way that I like to explain structured prediction is that it is an extension of classification to the setting in which you have multiple variables that you want to predict that all depend on each other. So the simple example that I used in my thesis was part of speech tagging. For every word in a sentence, you want to predict a part of speech. You could define a classifier that says, given the current word and the surrounding word and some other features, predict this part of speech of this word and apply that classifier to each word independently. That works pretty well uh, for part of speech prediction, but, you, but it doesn't take into account the fact that if you make a decision for word uh, a, that, uh, that that should make a, that should affect the decision that you make for nearby words. So the idea behind structured prediction methods is that when you have this set of variables you're trying to classify that depend on each other, you want to learn how they depend on each other and make a decision about all of them kind of jointly. So that's what kind of structured prediction methods are. Um, At the time that the original CRF paper came out, um, in um, there were a lot of structured prediction methods that were kind of happening at the you know around the same time um, for any method of doing classification you could lift it uh, to a structured prediction method uh, so there was a, a kind of well-known paper by uh, Mike Collins and co-authors on the um, um, on doing the kind of structured perceptron Right. So you could say, OK, given the perceptron update, you can um, update this to arbitrary structures. Uh, There was work on um, max margin uh, structured prediction methods and then conditional random fields were logistic regression, Um, you know, generalize them to the structured prediction setting. Mm -hmm. So why was so that's what conditional random fields are. The um, why were they interesting uh, is. You know, when, when we started doing machine learning for text, uh, you know, we were interested in kind of simpler problems like document classification, where there really is only one thing that you're trying to predict. And as we moved on to kind of more fine-grained tasks on text, such as, you know, uh, you know, identifying phrases or um, doing, uh, you know, identifying, you know, co-reference, extra, uh, co-reference resolution and things like that then there are you're making more decisions uh for each document so it seemed like one of the limitations of existing methods was the fact that you know you don't want to you want to take constraints into account you don't want to make these decisions um independently and then it was kind of interesting technically uh, because there was all of this technology from graphical modeling that was about how do you represent and learn uh, random variables that have dependencies on each other. And it turned out that you could lift all of this um, into the structured prediction setting uh, when you uh, in the framework of conditional random fields. So a lot of my thesis was about how do you take approximate inference methods that existed in the graphical modeling community and incorporate them within structured prediction. Um, the reason why there's a difference between kind of structured prediction and other types of graphical models is because during, when you're doing conditional random fields, you actually have to do inference during training. You know, every, you, know you have a sentence that you're mapping to say a um, sequence of part of speech tags. So your distribution over part of speech tags is gonna be different for every, in, for every input sentence. So once you get to more complex structures, like we mentioned uh, dynamic CRFs, and maybe we'll talk about other structures as well, Um, you have to run probabilistic inference, which is intractable, uh, for every input sequence. So that's Mm. kind of what makes conditional random fields difficult and uh, uh, harder to work with, especially when you move into loopy uh, conditional random fields.
0: Yeah, I really liked how you separated the parts of the thesis. So like modeling, training, uh, and then this idea of like having learning and inference. And so I thought it'd be interesting to like go through each of those parts and then think about how you think about modeling today and say like mm. text tasks and how you think about training. So like on the modeling side, uh, you mentioned these dynamic CRFs or another thing you developed in the thesis is the skip chain CRF. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was kind of the um, key idea of one of those, maybe the the skip chain CRF for instance.
1: Yeah. So the idea of the skip chain CRF was to uh, model longer distance constraints among the labels that you're trying to predict. So I gave the example of part of speech tagging before. In part of speech tagging, it matters a little bit what part of speech tag you put on the previous word uh, when I'm choosing the part of speech tag for this word, even that is not a lot, but it matters a little bit. Uh, the part of speech tag for a hundred words ago has basically no effect on what part of speech the current word has. Uh, so it's very local dependencies. But there are other types of dependencies that are longer distance in the text. And the example that uh, we were looking at was uh, for information, simple information extraction tasks. So there, um, if you have the same word occurring multiple times in an email like a, like a person's name or something like that, um it probably has the same uh, kind of meaning or the same label across the different usages. So, for example, if you're um, um, so the example we discussed in the paper, I think, was uh, information extraction from emails announcing. Calendar events. Uh, there were seminars, actually. And so, if the same name occurs multiple times in the document, like maybe you see uh, speaker colon Charles Sutton, and then later on you see the word, you know, Charles or something. And you like to say, okay, both times that this exists, it's probably the speaker. So, the kind of simple dependency that we had was whenever an identical word uh, appears multiple times in the document, it's likely to have the same label. Now, we don't want to put a hard constraint uh, because there might be common words where we don't want to have that dependency. So instead, what we'd like is for the model to learn for which types of words is this constraint important and for which types is it not. So Mm -hmm. the way that we modeled that in the skip chain CRF is we said, okay, we get an input sentence, we'll look for the pairs of identical words, and then we will put another edge in the graphical model. That connects those two words. So there's mm-hmm. going to be basically what this edge is going to do is like um, a graphical model defines a score, like a you know for a lot like a log probability if it's a di- um, directed model or a less interpretable score if it's undirected model. But in either case, it defines a score over all of the random variables in your domain. So when you add an edge to a graphical model, you're adding a term in that score function that lets the model learn to either upweight or downweight assignments based on you know, this whatever features you defined and the labels uh, for these pair of nodes. So by adding this long distance edge, we're giving the model a chance to learn that there might be some dependence between these labels, which could be tens or hundreds of tokens apart. Mm-hmm. So that was that's the kind of modeling motivation of the skip chain CRF. Now it also kind of made inference a lot uh, more complicated. We can get into that in the next uh, portion of the thesis.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It was it was really interesting to go back and and read through this. Like, and there's there's kind of two things. The first is just like the process of doing machine learning with these types of models. It seems like you kind of declare here's the model structure. And then you have this inductive bias that you're building in, in terms of these long distance dependencies. Mm-hmm. And then you could think of like, like in today's day, if we have like a really generic transformer language model, then it has this auto regressive factorization, which is really mm-hmm. expressive and we don't build in as much things. So That's right. how do you think about this contrast? Like is the, our ideas from the former, uh, Kind of like set of ideas still like useful for your thinking today
1: yeah yeah it's a little bit depressing but it's harder to see how these ideas of this style of generative modeling kind of carries over to the really effective tools that we have today when mm-hmm. we were making probabilistic models for machine learning there's a way in which you work backwards, right? So if you think about latent Dirichlet allocation, right? What you want to do is given a set of documents, say, what are the topics that occur in each document? That's the problem that you're trying to solve. But in order to solve this problem, you kind of work backwards and say, oh, actually, suppose I already knew what the topics were. How do I generate uh, the documents? And the fact that you want to be able to invert the model in a consistent way is where the technical uh, challenge of graphical models and probabilistic modeling came in. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, deep learning was a criticism of this aspect of Mm -hmm. probabilistic modeling. Um, And the philosophy of deep learning, which to some extent was part of what was going on with CRFs as well, was if you have this information X, and you want to predict y? Well, just build a machine that predicts y from x, right? Don't do this kind of inverse thing where you kind of create a machine the other way and then do this really complicated thing to try to invert it. And you know, there's a um, that's a very natural kind of criticism of this this type of method. Um, so it's uh, and you know, in the subsequent years, it's proven to be a pretty successful way of building systems. So it's harder to see uh, what you can carry over. The I think the main adv- the main thing that we had in the days of graphical models for machine learning that we don't yet have as much in the deep learning side is how do you deal with latent variables, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know if you if you say oh I want to weigh if you want to have a learning system that has a Um, that infers explanations that don't occur in the data and uses that as a way to guide its predictions. There was a clear methodology for doing this in the days of graphical models for machine learning. It's less clear what the best way is to do this now.
0: So then like in terms of yourself, like as you're doing research and then, yeah, maybe to jump a bit ahead, like as deep learning is taking off, what was it like from your perspective? Was it like Oh, this is kind of another uh like this shift is happening i'm gonna like shift my focus or um yeah just like what was your perspective in in general
1: yeah i mean that's basically what happened is i shifted mm-hmm. from working on uh probabilistic methods for machine learning to working kind of more exclusively in deep learning and That's something that happened gradually as it became clear that, you know, deep learning was more and more effective. Uh, And in in a large way, my PhD students uh, kind of drove me to do this as they, you know, my PhD students saw that deep learning was effective for a lot of things and so they wanted to try it out and write papers for it and as they got success with it that convinced me that okay this is the way that we should be going with this
0: yeah that makes sense and then another uh aspect that was interesting is like so if you think about the skip chain crf again it's kind of saying that the model that you choose has this limited uh context window like this limited history and mm-hmm. so you can add in these extra connections, which are longer distance. And then I think also at this time, it was based on the Ngram estimation.
1: The The way in which the CRFs are local is a bit more subtle than mm. um, the way in which the Ngram language models are local. Um, the, the, in, uh, in the linear chain and other CRFs we were doing at the time, the features for every, you know, word or a pair of words, yeah, they were typically local things around um, those words. By creating this kind of linear chain that connected all of the words in the sentence, at least in principle, this could allow long-distance effects from one set of feature to the other, because Mm -hmm. at least in principle, the model could say, oh, this word starts a phrase. And then, so 100 words later, that's going to change whether I predict that this other word is a phrase. And that could be propagated when you do the forward, backward, or Viterbi algorithms in the Mm -hmm. linear chain CRF. So there's more potential for um, this non-local operation than there was in an Ngram language model. But um, you know, in practice, the influence of uh, in practice for the applications we were looking at, the influence of a prediction did kind of tend to decay over time because every step you take in the graphical model is an opportunity for the influence of some local information to decay. So mm-hmm. there's still lo- there still is locality in the predictions that they're making, but the type of locality is more subtle.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The interesting like. Thought experiment that I was going through is like you could look at the model and see that there's this locality uh, limitation, and then in at least in an ngram based language model, there's a clear limitation in like the number of samples you would need. And then thinking about today, I was thinking you know one argument is now we have these very expressive uh, you know transformer-based models, and maybe it's just a matter of figuring out how to support the longer context window, and then that's it. We've solved everything. But then mm-hmm. I was thinking about another argument, which is like maybe it's kind of some analogy to where we were before that we haven't figured out the context window. So there's limited, there's some locality. And potentially, like we do have the scaling laws, but maybe they have diminishing returns. Uh, mm-hmm. But so yeah, I just wanted to get your, your, like, if you think about today's models, uh, yeah. you see in the, uh, yeah.
1: I think we're in a case where the limitations might be different because we're in a different point in the design space. The, um, some of the ngram models were very large in terms of the number of parameters. There were machine translation models uh, that were used in production, which were, I don't know the size of them, but it might've been uh, kind of very large ngrams. So the parameter counts of these models, you know, they compare to some of the biggest models that we have today. But there were still mm-hmm. strong inductive biases in the design of the models that come from the n-gram assumption.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I guess we're, we're in a different part of the design space in the sense that rather than working to really put inductive biases in the models to try to prevent them from overfitting. Uh, We're working with much more flexible and highly parameterized models and uh, avoiding overfitting just by doing um, kind of general learning objectives on large amounts of pre-training data. So I think the um, pathologies that we're worried about are more, even though we don't necessarily overfit in the same way that we expected these models might uh they're still going to have different pathologies than a method that was designed with a larger inductive bias so when people talk about things like compositional generalization right that's something maybe we should have worried about this for the previous generation of models but maybe we hadn't gotten to the level of effectiveness that that was the issue that we were worried about
0: I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Is there kind of a um, limitation that you keep in the back of your mind? That's like very apparent or not limitation, but like a a challenge. Like you mentioned the compositional generalization. Is there one that just like, is that the one that comes to mind? Uh,
1: That's one of them. The main one that comes to mind for me is it kind of, uh, related to some of the critiques that others have been making about, um, uh, about kind of large language models. Like lots of people have been kind of raising the criticism of what semantic information do large language models actually have the, in the domain of program synthesis, I'm skipping ahead a bit. It Mm. was pretty striking to me that the language models that we had weren't really good at executing even code that the model had generated and Mm -hmm. that seems like a pretty clear demonstration to me that the model doesn't understand program semantics Uh, and the um so there is a sense in which the model is parroting back recombined versions of what it's seen in the training data but in a way that's better than i ever thought possible Mm -hmm. so uh you know um I, i i do think that um so a lot of people are uh rightfully concerned about the to what extent is the model simply memorizing what's occurred in the training data versus, you know, producing novel solutions. I think the way I think the conceptual framework that we use to think about memorization and parroting is fundamentally confused. Mm. So if you take the example of program synthesis, like let's say, Um, there is, in the training data in GitHub, I'm sure there are many implementations of Ackermann's function. So if I ask the model to say synthesize Ackermann's function and give it a method signature, and I want it to call the method F and use these arguments, even if I never have used that function name and those argument names in the training data, there's a good chance that the model will kind of take one of the implementation, will, will produce an implementation that is similar to something that's occurred in the training set, but making the modifications that are necessary mm-hmm. to use the formal arguments that I've defined in the context. There's a sense in which that's memorization, if it does that, but there's also a sense in which it's made an important change to what it's mm-hmm. seen before that's necessary for the code to be semantically correct. So do you want to call that memorization or do you want to call that a particularly simple form of generalization? It's probably Mm. both. Um, So I I don't think I think setting up memorization versus generalization as a dichotomy is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And we need a conceptual framework for thinking about the types of generalization that occur from these large data sets. And some are going to be more interesting. Some are going to be less interesting. But they're all things that we want the model to be able to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are two really interesting aspects that you mentioned. So yeah, you could imagine memorization being like literally just report back the entire function. But then there's this aspect of, like, if you memorize chunks of functions and then come up with a composition of them that's new, then, like, is the memorization actually bad in that case? Because it's, I mean, that's hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's another aspect, which is, like, if you're changing things like argument names, then it's kind of memorized some, like, template you could think of it. And it's deploying right. it in a new way. So. Yeah. Hmm. So, I, yeah. I mean,
1: I don't know what the right way is to quantify or describe the types of generalization uh, that a model is able to do. If I did, I would probably write a paper about it. But I think that's uh, that's something that seems like an important problem to me, to be able to talk about types of memorization and types of generalization in a more nuanced way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just to, to stay on that, because you also the, mentioned this interesting thing about the semantics, Um, to me, like it could seem like more of a philosophical argument, like, oh, it doesn't understand the semantics. Um, is there some, maybe this is what you just said that we don't have a good way of actually testing this. Like, what do we actually want out of the model? Do we want like robustness that would be enabled by understanding the semantics or does that question make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that as we ask these models to perform more complex tasks, that then it will be necessary for them to be grounded in not just um, then it'll nece- it will be necessary for models to be grounded in what are the words actually talking about. I, I mean, I think that seems, I mean, that seems clear to me that. Um, it, whether it went for natural language or programming language, there's an underlying domain that's being manipulated or, or discussed. And in some level, if the model doesn't know how to reason in the domain, it's not going to be able to write code or carry on a conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's some, some parts of the thesis about uh, modeling. To go onto the training, or uh, learning aspect. Um, so here you looked into a few things, uh, like this idea of piecewise training, and a lot into uh, pseudo likelihood. Mm-hmm. So did you maybe want to just, um, yeah, again, like give a kind of a backstory of what you worked on at the time, uh, just as a starting point?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The So what makes... difficult to do learning in conditional random fields when the graphical structure became something more complex than a tree is the fact that you would need to do probabilistic inference for every data point in the training set repeatedly every time you call the optimization algorithm. So the the idea behind piecewise training and pseudo-likelihood was to change the learning objective In such a way that, okay, you would still do inference at test time uh, in order to get some of these non-local dependencies that the structure allows you to have. Uh, But at training time, you would try to do something that doesn't do full inference at every step just because you have to do it so many times. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea and... Piecewise training and pseudo-likelihood were different ways of defining a local objective that would hopefully lead to a solution that would still do something sensible for global inference uh, when you did that at test time. So for pseudo-likelihood, kind of amazingly, uh, before I start, I should probably explain what pseudo-likelihood is. So maximum likelihood, kind of, you know, has people know if you do kind of any kind of uh, any kind of deep learning is just saying I want to maximize the log probability of the training data according to the model, and I'm going to ma- use that as a way of training the model parameters. So pseudo likelihood is going to say in the simplest version. Is going to say, well, rather than maximizing the joint probability over all the variables in the domain, I'm going to maximize a product of conditional probabilities. And I'm just going to say for every node in my graphical model, max uh I'm going to maximize the probability of that node given the neighbors that I observed in the training data. Uh, And I'll do that for every training item. And and the idea is if I get all of those local conditional distributions correct, then I'll actually get the Global probability correct. At least if I get enough training data, it's a bit less data efficient than maximum mm-hmm. likelihood. Uh, but in the limit, you you converge to the correct solution under under some other conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so you know that's kind of already this kind of amazing result that you can do something local and get a globally correct solution. You know, we did find there was a. Um, small but noticeable uh, decrease in accuracy. Um, especially if you did the more naive versions of pseudo likelihood, you could generalize pseudo likelihood uh, in a way that works much better. And the kind of uh, most general version of this is called composite likelihood um, in the in the statistics literature. Um, so that, that, was, that was kind of one thing. And then, you know, piecewise training was doing something uh, kind of more radical uh, that statisticians, maybe for good reasons, uh, wouldn't want a continence, which is to say, okay, let's just drop the uh, kind of consistency requirement and say, well, I'll do something local that's maybe somewhat sensible. And then um, if the local decisions are clear enough like there might be some kind of probabilistic overcounting going on, uh, but if the local decisions are clear enough, then you actually are still doing something that's uh, uh, that might be globally sensible.
0: Do you see some connection between this pseudo likelihood and masked language modeling?
1: Yeah, uh, and that was something. I mean, definitely. And that was something uh, like others, like uh, um, like Chunming uh kind of uh, uh, kind of made this point as well. That it de- there's definitely feels like there's an analogy uh, between pseudo likelihood and mass language modeling because you're trying to predict words and you want to say given you want to say given the surrounding words predict something that's in the middle. It's not exactly the same, and the reason it's not exactly the same. Is that for something to be pseudo likelihood, there has to be like one joint distribution, and then all of these little masks have to be the conditional distribution according to that joint distribution. Whereas mm-hmm. in mass language modeling, it's more like I have this neural network that defines a family of conditional distributions, depending on where I put the mask. But there's nothing that explicitly guarantees that this family of conditional distributions will correspond to a single joint distribution.
0: Mm-hmm. See, right, because yeah.
1: in general, you could define a family of conditional distributions that are inconsistent uh, in the sense that there's no global distribution uh, that dominates them, that's, that generates all of them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So after thinking about like all these different learning algorithms though, and like pseudo likelihood, do you have some, uh, kind of like, uh, conception of like why mass language modeling works so well and like, Mm -hmm. whether it's similar to just doing normal language modeling, I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this one. (laughs) That's
1: a good question is it similar to doing normal language modeling if you had the same consistency result for Mm -hmm. mass language modeling as you had for pseudo likelihood then yeah you could do mass language modeling as a way of doing normal language modeling right it would it would be fine um so so i I guess yeah so maybe that's that's the best way of explaining the difference um probably my intuition for why mass language modeling is a good thing to do is the same as why pseudo-likelihood makes sense. And it's certainly by kind of decoupling. In some sense mass language modeling is decoupling the local conditional distributions because you're no longer explicitly having this constraint that there's a single joint distribution. And you know that decoupling makes it composition it uh, makes it that decoupling makes training much easier computationally. And, you know, probably work still works fine in the end.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, like after working on uh, again, like training and learning algorithms during your PhD, um, do you think about uh, you know working on the ways that we train models today, or is it kind of like taken as a given that we're going to use you know something like maximum likelihood, and that's maybe not what you're interested in right now?
1: Okay. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So your question is um in my if i restate your question i proposed alternatives to maximum likelihood in my phd or is mm. there any value to considering alternatives to maximum likelihood today yeah yeah no. i don't know mm-hmm. the it's possible i mean there are some alternatives to maximum likelihood that are in wide use uh, so that like mass, uh, language modeling and also, uh, uh <clears throat> also contrastive, uh, objectives, um, right. right. So probably the two biggest ones,
0: I guess. Like the, the kind of second step of, uh, fine tuning based on reinforcement learning, I guess yeah. is a bit different too.
1: That's right. If you do kind of any RL based fine tuning, that's, a uh, that's a different type of thing or any type of auxiliary loss.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I guess like maybe back then it was, it required, or yeah, I guess it's hard to say. (laughs) I was gonna say like it required thinking a lot more about the learning. Whereas now we have like more off the shelf things, but that might not be completely true.
1: I think part of the difference is we co-design the architecture and the training method in a different way, in a Mm -hmm. way that kind of makes inference easier. Right. You'd be less likely to propose an architecture if you couldn't um, kind of if it didn't directly give you the conditional distributions that you care about.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of like great work you did in your thesis. And so we could keep like connecting it with things you did back then. But maybe like in the interest of um, time, I want to start talking about this area that you've kind of worked on. After your thesis around code and program synthesis, mm-hmm. and so how did that you know like in your in your thesis I don't think there's anything about code and program synthesis. No. So like what was the, kind of the story of of picking that up uh, and getting interested in that?
1: Yeah, um, there wasn't too big of a story involved in how I got interested in code. It was just one day I was a professor at Edinburgh and. I was thinking, and I thought, oh, all of this data that we have on SourceForge, like nobody's doing machine learning on this and treating it as text and doing the types of things we know how to do with language modeling. What could you do if you had a language model on this amount of code? So we just kind of downloaded it and tried it. What really jump-started that work I was when, at first, So at first, this work on code was just motivated by here's a data set where I think that methods I know should do something cool. Mm -hmm.
0: And I didn't
1: know what was the right way to to find a research community that would be kind of interested in the things that we made. Uh, At first, when we started doing this type of work, You know, if we would submit it to a machine learning conference or to a natural language conference, uh, we would get pushback because the machine learning conferences would say, "Okay, this is a nice data set, but you're not doing any machine new machine learning methods. Uh, We don't care. And the natural language conferences would say this is not natural language. It's out of scope for us. So it took a while to find like what's the right um, kind of research communities to be engaging with. So you know, once we kind of learned that uh, there were people in the software engineering community like Prem Devanbu and people in the programming languages community like Aranya Hav and Mark Bechev who were also interested in these types of issues, that made it much easier to do this kind of work uh, because the first rule of doing great interdisciplinary work and moving into a new research area is to find great collaborators. Mm -hmm. So until you find the collaborators who know uh, things on the other side, which for me were like people like Prem, like Earl Barr, uh, Andy Gordon, Chris Chris Bird, uh, you know, that really kind of helps you to understand what are the kind of downstream research issues uh, that are the most important.
0: Yeah, I see. So then at the time, like you mentioned, it kind of, um, if you submitted something to a machine learning conference, they might not view it as, uh, you know, interesting in in some sense. Um, Has that changed over time that like maybe back then you were kind of doing the initial work that's necessary? And now there's things that are interesting, not only from the programming languages perspective, but also just from a pure machine learning perspective. Has that kind of evolved over time or?
1: Yeah, I think there's much more interest and enthusiasm uh, for doing machine learning on code than there was kind of 10 years ago uh, when we Mm -hmm. started doing this. And that's been kind of amazing to see.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, so I thought it was interesting that you talked about having this sufficiently difficult application so is this kind of an example of it?
1: <laughs> it's a very difficult application. Um, the I mean, you can define... I mean, there's different applications you can define uh, that are all very difficult. Basically, all of the activities that we do when we write code are very difficult problems in machine learning and natural language processing. So there is... Um, You know, once I've decided on a problem that I want to solve, like, how do I write code to solve that problem? There's like, how do I make sure that code is readable? How do I discuss it with other developers? How do I write documentation that will help people read it later? How do you read and debug code? Uh, you know, all of these are kind of fruitful and difficult uh, applications for machine learning, natural language processing, software engineering, programming languages.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much do you find it helps to kind of be uh, like focused on this area versus say like doing natural language processing research and using code as an application? Like, is it the kind of like interfacing with the domain experts and you find interesting problems or because increasingly, especially with like large language models, you could just apply them to different domains. So like, what is the value of focusing on a particular domain? I guess would be my question.
1: That's a really good question. I believe that if you are going to work in a particular application, you need to take that application seriously. If you just view it as a data set that you are evaluating your methods on, you are not going to see the fundamental insight that's necessary to tell you what machine learning problems you should be working on. And you Mm -hmm. also aren't going to have enough insight to know what are the problems in the application that would move the needle in how people do work in that area. So I think if you don't take the application seriously enough to be able to speak the language of people who actually work in that area, then in the long term, you will find yourself fundamentally just working on the wrong problems.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, maybe we'll talk about a couple things that you've worked on recently in, in this area. So great, like two, two papers that I saw were this crossbeam paper and language mo- models for program synthesis. Yeah, starting with the crossbeam, um, kind of what is the idea here? So, here it's using this bottom up enumerative search procedure, mm-hmm. and so there's some notion of like structure in the procedure, and That's then you're right. using language models for it.
1: Yeah, so, um I really like the advice from Richard Hamming in this amazing lecture about uh, you and your research, which is advice to young researchers. There are lots of things in there that I take away and try to use every day. One of them is always to ask, what are the most important problems uh, in your research area? And kind of use your answer to that to drive your research agenda. Mm. If I think about program synthesis, I think one of the most important problems there is that the space of programs you could generate is very large. So any program synthesis method is doing search over this combinatorially large space of possible programs. And so I was really motivated. By work that's happened in natural language processing on kind of learning to search, uh, so you know things like like CERN, HAL domain, and others, and you know other other things like that, and the idea of rather than training a method to say. You know, given a partial program, what's the perfect thing I could do next if I've written the program well so far as kind of behavior cloning, teacher forcing uh, type of thing to have a model that is uh, trained based on the situations that it will encounter uh, during a search procedure through possible programs. Because that way a model can learn to correct its own mistakes uh, as Mm. it gets farther through the search procedure. So that was... Um, kind of one of the things that uh, excited us about uh, working in this, uh, working on Crossbeam, and we were also kind of. Uh, I mean, this didn't really come out in the paper, and maybe it's, um, um maybe it causes some controversy uh, to say this, uh, but you know, we were also like at least in the early discussions that like Kevin Ellis and I were having, uh, we were kind of motivated by the way in which genetic programming is similar to bottom-up search that you are kind of building up small programs uh you know maybe you're executing them and using uh, the fitness function that you get from that to kind of prioritize uh what you're going to do next in the search procedure and you know we thought you didn't necessarily need to buy into the crossover so that's actually why we had the name crossbeam is Mm. (laughs) that it was something like learn beam search, and there was some kind of cross, we actually ended up not using crossover at all, Um, but that was kind of where the name came from. So the idea of actually learning what your fitness function is going to be uh, over small programs as you're combining them into larger programs. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we were interested in bottom-up search over programs is, uh, there's two reasons. One is that it's intuitively nice because if you imagine writing a program yourself, you know maybe you write kind of one small piece of the function and then you write another small piece and then you kind of combine them together. And that seemed like a more natural way of writing code than generating left to right from the first token in the file to the last token in the file. And the second thing that's appealing about that is if you guide the bottom-up search in a certain way, like if it's always starting from the inputs of the function, then at every step you can actually execute uh, the program that you've um, generated so far. And that actually gives the model a lot of information about whether it's on the right track uh, during search. So Mm -hmm. the idea behind CrossBeam was to train an on policy network that would say within bottom-up search, be able to use the results of executing partial programs to decide where the search should go next. And Mm. in principle, we could have done, you know, an RL approach for this type of thing, that would be an interesting thing to consider. Um, You know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessary to do that, at least to get some good results. uh, Because we found, you know, we could just kind of Uh, kind of run the policy, get the search dates that occur during the policy. And with bottom-up search, you've never painted yourself into a corner. Right. Because even if I've made a lot of wrong decisions about what to combine, if you're not pruning anything away, you can always go back and say, what would have been the right things to combine, even though I've made this series of mistakes. So we Mm -hmm. could we could always say, no matter where we are in search, we could go back and say, actually, because we know the right solution for the training data, these are the correct solutions now. And so we could use this to get kind of an on policy, kind of an on policy, more supervised learning rather than needing to resort to RL.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really like this. There's a lot of cool ideas in it. First is this like idea of learning and search and having them interleaved and doing this on policy training. Um, another is, uh, and maybe it's kind of an excuse to like bring in this uh, this like concept that everyone's talking about in terms of like symbolic and neurosymbolic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something about it is symbolic in the sense that you're like combining these sub pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get your like larger opinion on that. Is like neurosymbolic a useful term that you think about, and mm-hmm. like what parts of the problem do you think it is relevant for? Or
1: yeah, that's great. Um, I think the the jury is out on how useful neurosymbolic is going to be as a organizing principle for developing methods. Uh, I've done work that I would definitely categorize as neurosymbolic. Um, Certainly, you know, crossbeam you could view in this way, or um, we had a paper a couple years ago with one of my students, uh, Lazar Valkov and Swart Chaudhry and others, about um, um, using program synthesis to learn how to reuse uh, different pre-trained networks in a, in a neural library. And that's something I definitely think about as neurosymbolic. Mm. The, um, I, I guess neurosymbolic methods are appealing uh, because it does seem like you know neural networks and search and logic techniques have complementary strengths. Like neural networks are kind of pattern recognizers par excellence. Uh, and they're very good at dealing with uh, uh, perceptual data. Um, Whereas, you know, if symbolic search, I don't know how to deal with perceptual data at all, Um, but it's kind of really good at compositional generalization. It's really good at few shot type things like you make one change uh, to a rule based to the rules in a rule based system, and suddenly you can make completely different inferences. So uh, you can kind of adapt to new information very quickly. So these seem like complementary strengths. So that's kind of a motivation to try to bring them together. But there's a risk to it too, right? And the risk is that um, formal logic has a 2,000-year history of overpromising and under-delivering. So if you think back to uh, the origins of logic in kind of Aristotle and other Greek philosophers, um, it, they were thinking about logic as a normative theory of human thought. And in that, you know, logic has been a complete failure. So it's almost perplexing that we would then think that logic would be an accurate descriptive theory of human thought. And so far it hasn't been. So hmm. it really wasn't until the 20th century when we found that logic is actually a fantastic way to describe computation that, okay, that now it's kind of clear that that's a um, that there are kind of uh, that there's a, a research program um, in which kind of logic is kind of central and successful. So, you know, the fact that logical methods in AI, have not been as successful as we might have hoped, maybe shouldn't have been surprising to people as it was, um, given
0: um, um, given the 2,000-year the, the track record?
1: <laughs> yeah, so given the 2,000-year track record of logic, maybe it shouldn't have been surprising that it was as difficult as it was to get symbolic AI working.
0: And so then when you contrast CrossBeam with this other project that you work on with the large language models Mm -hmm. there, it kind of seems like they're two, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. They're two like different philosophies. So absolutely the language model. Yeah. You're just doing it end to end and there's no, uh, bottom up search or anything like that. So how do you compare and contrast them?
1: Yeah, I think it's exactly what you said that, um, for, uh, for Crossbeam, there's, uh, you know, sophisticated search method where you're doing bottom-up search, you're uh, executing programs, you're pruning by observational equivalents, like following previous work in the programming languages literature. And whereas for, uh, for the large language models work, yeah, there's a type of search, but it's just temperature sampling, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, you know, very just kind of Monte Carlo and not using kind of the structure of, that we know of programs to try to make search better. And yeah, I think the the jury's out about which philosophy is the right way to go. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, what were some, I I really like this paper in it. It, Thank you. There was like a lot of exploration in it too. Like towards the end, you had this like interactive, uh, it was kind of like having an interactive dialogue with the system Mm -hmm. and like correcting its mistakes and things like that. So what kind of, just to narrow it down to something like, what kind of surprised you the most from this study? Was it like how well things worked? Was it actually like the error types that were happening? Is there something mm-hmm. specific? Yeah,
1: yeah, that is great. There were three things, uh, I think, that surprised me about the study. Um, the first is that, you know, um, you know, unlike Codex or Copilot, uh, I, or maybe there's... Maybe there's four things. I'll be like, uh, among the things that surprised me. So one is one thing that surprised me is that we were able to get good performance even though our fine-tuning set was very, very small. So in that mm-hmm. work, we were not training a full-fledged language model uh, on GitHub code um, unlike the kind of work that OpenAI was doing uh, on Codex, which is also fantastic. So, you know, we had this kind of very small fine tuning set, but even so, uh, we were able to get kind of good performance on predicting these simple programs. And the reason we're able to do that is maybe the second thing that uh, surprised me, uh, which is that the Lambda model that we use contains in its pre-training set, a set of web documents that describe code. So like Q and sites and things like that. And that turned out to be kind of relatively powerful for um, uh, for being able to do these uh, these types of simple programs that this is tasks. Now you can do even better if you fine tune on a lot of GitHub, but the fact that this contained information was kind of the second thing that uh, I found surprising about this. The... Third thing was um, the results that we've talked about with program executions. The fact that from the small data set we could do a good job of synthesis, but not a good job of execution, right? Mm. That was something that I thought was really interesting and, and motivating for future work. And then the fourth thing, like you described, is the is the dialogue results. And I view those both as a kind of fascinating thing and uh, and a limitation to address in future work. Uh, I thought it was it was kind of really amazing that you could um, you know uh, just have these kind of short sentences that would cause the model to revise its prediction. There's no reason to think uh, that it would do that a priori. At the same time, the most effective changes. That we had were where you say fairly literal things about the code, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to say the exact line of code, but it would be something like, oh, you should import the regular expression package. And that would be enough to tell the model, you know, without using the actual RE token in Python, that would be enough to get it the right thing. But it's still kind of a low level change rather than some kind of higher level comment that a person would make about the code. So it's both mm-hmm. kind of really interesting and an opportunity for future work. And I am gonna plug um, some of my collaborators working on this, like you know Max Nye for driving the execution work and Jacob Austin for really driving the dialogue stuff. It was kind of really, really great to see both of those things in the paper.
0: Uh-huh, cool. So then like moving forward, do you think that it's a matter of like now that we have these initial results with like applying the large language model, now it's like identified new problems and it's a matter of like setting up the new tasks or yeah. Like what do you see for the the future? I
1: I think absolutely that um, the kind of the the initial work that we did on large language models and people's experience in using copilot has absolutely kind of gives us more insight into the limitations of these models. So you know, when, when I see papers that kind of criticize, uh, you know, kind of large models and large language models, you can view them as reason to be skeptical of the research program and do a different research program. That's a totally valid thing to do. Um, I kind of view them as being kind of amazing to read because they give me ideas for making better large language models. And we just have to see, uh, you know, which which response is is right. They're both they're both reasonable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. So, um, yeah. And then, so now you're at uh, Google and then also affiliated with, uh, University of Edinburgh.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: So you're kind of working on this direction is your main uh, research area or
1: that's right. That's right.
0: Yeah. I think this is, this has been an amazing conversation and, uh, you've done so much fascinating work. There's, I could keep going for, for hours, but, um, (laughs) Maybe in the, in the interest of time, there's two questions that I ask on every thesis review. Okay, great. And um, so the first is, uh, if you could think about objective functions. So if you could think back to your PhD and come up with some objective function that was kind of guiding your activities, was it uh, maybe like scientific exploration? Was it like you had a certain job in mind, and you kind of work backwards from that. Um, what was your objective function during the PhD? And then what would you say it is uh, nowadays?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Uh, the objective function for me at the time, it certainly wasn't a job, uh, because not, I'm not saying anything wrong with that. Uh, but I didn't know what I wanted to do after my PhD until probably the end of my postdoc is when I decided that I was going to try academia. I guess I was just trying to do things that were cool. So it was very much I, you know, I I there was a playpen, right? And when I started working with Andrew, I was introduced to this amazing playpen of this family of models conditional random fields and this set of tasks. And um it was a fun playpen to be in. And so I wanted to see, you know, what's the best way to get, uh, you know, joint training across multiple tasks uh, with, within this playpen. So I was just trying to do the funnest thing I could within this set of things, within this environment that seemed really fun. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's not a bad way to work. Um, there's, there's probably ways that could be even better, right? But uh, yeah.
0: And then uh, nowadays, if you could say, is it the same objective function?
1: Well, to some extent, yes. Um, What's different now is that I have more insight into how to choose a playpen. (laughs) I see. Uh, And, and, you know, I I think more about... um, One thing I think about more now is... It's, it's one thing to write an interesting paper. It's another thing to write a paper that will cause other people to write a lot of interesting papers. So mm. if when you do a piece of work, like what what is what the follow on? Like what are the new issues that this work opens up? I'm not saying I'm always successful in doing that, but I at least think about that in a way that uh, I didn't do as consciously before.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then the final question, uh, sometimes it's the hardest, if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher, um, and it could either be just a simple heuristic that you found to be useful, or it could be some grand advice, mm-hmm. um, or you could give both if you want, but uh, one piece of advice for a new researcher.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The one piece of advice is going to be hard since Mm -hmm. I have an entire blog, which is devoted around (laughs) giving advice to researchers and giving advice is a bit of an intoxicating thing. So once you get started, it's very hard to stop. I, you know, everything is a balance, right? So on the one hand, when you first start as a researcher, It is an apprenticeship, and you need to work with someone more experienced to be able to know what problems are worth working on and to get an example of how to find interesting problems. Like, that's the most important reason to have a good mentor in research. On the other hand, you do have to get to a point where you have escape velocity, right? And where you're defining the research agenda um, rather than it's so, you know, as part of a conversation with your collaborators, rather than it being kind of solely something that you're taking from others. Um, so I guess I would say, or another, another example is reading the literature. You know, if you don't read the literature at all, or if you only do it at the time when you have to write the related work section. Uh, from your papers, then you know your view is probably going to be too narrow. And you're not going to know about when there's some kind of interesting trick from statistics or optimization that would help you with the problem that you have. On the other hand, it's definitely possible to read too much. Mm. And you probably do not want to start when you have, uh, when you're moving into a new problem to just read all the existing papers on that problem because then the ideas that you have are going to be too close to what exists in the literature already. So it's kind of like you want to think about the problem a bit before you go off and do a literature review. So that's another example where it's kind of about a balance and either extreme is wrong. So I think that's true of most things in research, that when you get advice, it's almost always the case that the advice is sometimes right and sometimes wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. And um, like you mentioned, for more advice, uh, you have a really great blog uh, with a lot of great advice on it. Thank so uh, listeners can can check that out. And I'll include links to all the papers that we discussed as well. And um, yeah, like I said, this has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, preparing for it, like reading through all the interesting work you've done. And then it was a great uh, conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the thesis review.
1: Yeah, Uh, thanks so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed this conversation and thanks for all of the kind
0: words.